Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, star of the Adolfo Rolo comeback film. Oh, yeah, (laughs) you could. You'd be perfect to work with Adolfo Rolo, I think. Anyone who writes a 500-page script, you're already in good shape, right? Oh, yeah. That's the way to start it. That's always to get off on the right foot there with a handwritten title page and money from some money sort of... from some gangsters, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's like. yeah sure. exactly. So who is Aldolfo Rolo and what is going on here? Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1992 And we are here at the Sundance Film Festival to talk about the Grand Jury Prize winner. And that is In the Soup from director and co-writer Alexander Rockwell, starring Steve Buscemi as Aldolfo Rolo, the aspiring filmmaker who I guess we'll talk about this more, but does not seem like he will make a good film or any film. Well, that's true. (laughs) But even if he gets to make a film, I'm not inspired with any confidence in Aldolfo Rolo's filmmaking (laughs) abilities. Well, uh, as we said, his script is 500 pages. His investor is falling asleep when he's listening to it on page four. Doesn't seem like he's got uh, much juice going. But you know what, Josh? Much like In the Soup, maybe it'll be a surprise. Maybe so. Maybe it'll uh, be a a scrappy little film that will stand the test of time, but uh, we will never find out until they make In the Soup 2. In the the super. In the super. Can't wait for that. So this movie was, it was a sensation of sorts. Uh, Obviously, it won this grand jury prize at Sundance. And as we've talked about, 1992 was this big, big breakout year for independent cinema and for Sundance. And we talked about Reservoir Dogs. And we, uh, I don't know if we mentioned in that episode, but El Mariachi, Robert Rodriguez's film. I mean, so much of a breakout for these independent filmmakers. And Alexander Rockwell was the one who captured the attention of the Sundance jury. Uh, The movie also won a special jury prize for acting for Seymour Cassell, who plays Joe the Gangster, who... I don't know if he helps Aldolfo Rolo. He claims that he's going to help Aldolfo Rolo make his movie. It never actually happens throughout the running time of this film. But I mean, he's better off with Joe than without him. Eh, eh, I don't know. I feel like that's debatable. He couldn't even pay rent without Joe. That is true. That is true. But uh, lots of other things happen with Joe that maybe are not best for old Aldolfo there. But he just kind of goes with the flow. He's he's a very passive, unassertive guy, which I think makes it difficult to make it in the cutthroat world of show business to begin with. But it allows Joe to kind of take advantage of him or use him as his lackey in certain ways. Yes. And by show business, you mean the world of independent film in the 90s in New York. Right. Well, but that is show business. I mean, you got to you got to hustle, right, Jason? You know, you want to make a film. You got to really have self-confidence. You have to be able to sell yourself. You have to schmooze. All of these things that Aldolfo Rolo seems to be not good at. Yeah. So listeners, if you want to send me money to make a movie, just hit me up. As you know, uh, we're on uh, the Instagram and everything else. Jason Harris Comedy. We'll put your money into a movie and I won't even have to commit a crime for you. (laughs) See, that's what you need. You need the audacity to solicit 
money for your movie in the middle of a podcast. And mm-hmm. Aldolfo Rolo just doesn't have that. It's yeah. not going to happen for him. His podcasting career in 1992 was minimal at best. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a big Sundance hit, but it wasn't exactly, unlike I think Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez, it didn't necessarily translate into a larger mainstream success. Uh, Wikipedia says it grossed about $256,000, which is not very much money. I didn't see what the budget was, although the budget was probably also about $256,000. This is a movie that Alexander Rockwell, although, uh, again, unlike Tarantino and Rodriguez, he had been making movies for a decade at this point. His first feature came out in 1982. This was his fourth feature, but he hadn't achieved any kind of wider recognition with any of those films, and he was still cobbling together budgets at this point, much like Aldolfo Rolo and used, uh, what was it, some money from his mother-in-law or something like that. Um, so barely threw this stuff together, put people in the movie that he knew from the New York City arts uh, scene or independent film scene, including you know, Jennifer Beals, who was his wife at the time. So it probably wasn't a big budget movie, but it certainly didn't make a huge profit or anything like that, despite its uh, success at Sundance and its its critical acclaim. Yeah, Josh, I think I don't think it was his mother-in-law. I think it was the money came from Jennifer Beals. She was doing a lot of welding in these warehouses. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then, you know, it just kind of went from there. Right. Mm. Yeah. All of that flash dancing that she was doing. Really <laughs> exactly. So helped finance the film. But, uh, you know, you mentioned a few things like this is like that quintessential uh, magical period of New York indie cinema, right? 84 with the Jarmusch through, uh, you know, kind of the mid 90s. And you got Steve Buscemi, who was like the leading, leading man of this time. Stanley Tucci's in here. Carol Kane's in here. So there's a lot of those characters that uh, Jim Jarmusch is in here, right? So um, you got a lot of those characters and they're all kind of trying to work together. Right. And Jim Jarmusch, clearly an influence on Alexander Rockwell, although they're essentially contemporaries, I think, because Rockwell did start earlier than a lot of these 90s auteurs. But there's a lot of Jarmushy touches in this film, I guess you could say, not only the appearance from Jarmusch himself, but just the style of it, the kind of ramshackle, rambling nature of this film, I think, reminded me of him. And Buscemi had already worked with Jarmusch and he'd worked with the Coens and, you know, he'd uh, I mean, what a year for him at Sundance between this and Reservoir Dogs, right? Right, right. Steve Buscemi is the real breakout star of 1992 Sundance, and deservedly so. Yeah, I think of the entire yeah. 90s film, independent film scene. Like, he's got to be one of the top dogs. He is indeed. Although, for this film in particular, it was Seymour Cassell who got most of the attention from critics, as well as that award from Sundance. And critics were mostly positive about this film, even though there, I didn't find a ton of reviews. It didn't seem like this got a super wide release, really. But uh, critics who saw it generally were positive about it. Kenneth Turan in the LA Times said, In the Soup is a charming pipsqueak of a movie, a playful film of ragged and shaggy appeal. All its virtues are small scale except for one, because inside this little picture is the year's largest, most robust piece of acting a performance that no one can resist. Given its insubstantial, meandering nature, the picture has its share of story problems and ends up winding down more than ending. But it is Seymour Cassell's wonderful performance that lingers after everything fades. He is finally both the reason to see this film and the reason you won't walk away disappointed. 
Yeah, Josh, you're really good at uh, reading these Kenneth Turan reviews, and I think you oh, should thank you. take it on the road as a Kenneth Turan cover reviewer called Turan Turan. Oh, Ooh. man. That was, how long have you been waiting for that one? <laughs> zero. Little, All right. Literally just zero. pulled that one out. Yeah. <laughs> nice but, work. Uh, but, uh, but no, I mean, yeah, look, we know Seymour Cassell is charming. Uh, Rushmore, we've talked about him and and – you know, he's just such a wonderful presence. And of course, the Cassavetti stuff. So I think like he's not just an actor who was incredibly talented, but like someone that you're like, yes, finally, he's getting a chance to like do something a little bigger. And we're, we're rooting for that. Right. Certainly he was, I mean, uh, got a lot of attention for those Cassavetti's films. And that was one of the reasons that he was cast in this film, because Alexander Rockwell loved the John Cassavetti's films. Of course, we we did not love Cassavetes when we talked about his movie Gloria last season. But aside from those Cassavetes films, Cassell was and then remained after this mostly a character actor, a lot of smaller projects. So he's clearly relishing having this big showcase in this film and making the most of it. And yeah, he should be doing that, Josh. You know, uh, it's nice. First of all, a man, you know, especially now, right? You'd be like, Oh, when is a guy that age going to get like a, a a juicy part, right? So, you know. Right. And good. he gets he gets top billing in this film even though Steve Buscemi is clearly the main character, but presumably Buscemi was not known at this time and Seymour Cassell was at least a bit known. He'd been nominated for an Oscar. So. I'm going to disagree. Like I said, he'd already worked with um, Jarmish and he'd already done maybe two Coen Brothers movies including Barton Fink. So, I think maybe he wasn't as known as Cassell, but right. Steve Buscemi was a known entity by this point in time. No, I suppose you're right. That's true. He was at least somewhat known, even though those aren't big mainstream films. Um, certainly those are movies that people had seen. But Cassell getting that top billing, clearly the draw here, or at least as far as um, Alexander Rockwell is concerned. I mean, really, Jennifer Beals was probably in the biggest movie of all of them, right? Flashdance. That's true. I mean, it'd been a few years since Flashdance, but you're right. That was much bigger hit than any of those other movies in terms of commercial appeal. And uh, presumably she did this movie, uh, maybe not for the money that she was getting for other films, but uh, out of love, which is. Well, nice. yes, sure, Josh. She loved her husband, but also like. You know, if you look at Jennifer Beale's career, she like has had an interesting twist and turns and playing a lot of interesting characters along the way. And so I'm sure even if they weren't married, there was an appeal to this character. For Oh, her. yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it was not just, oh, whatever, hubby, I'll do this for you. It was a chance to make a film that interested her, but um, certainly on a much smaller scale than presumably the kinds of things she was offered after Flashdance. Right. Which was, you know, like you said, 1983 and we're in 19. Right. It had been a while. It had been a while since then. That's true. So Janet Maslin in The New York Times said in his arch, furiously clever in the soup, Alexander Rockwell tackles the subject most readily available to any up and coming filmmaker, the difficulty of getting a film made. Mr. Rockwell has transformed his potentially myopic subject into a wild grab bag of offbeat characters and deadpan comic effects and in the process made a dryly funny film of exceptional visual beauty. Although In the Soup has a deliberate storyline, it plays more as a series of anecdotes, in part because the story is so diffidently told. The film's energy and humor are most sharply focused around Mr. Cassell's scene-stealing antics, and around the young would-be filmmaker's artistic aspirations. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, look, that there's something, if you wanted to criticize it as like this, series of kind of like sketches um as opposed to like a 
a very clean linear narrative you could but i i kind of like that in this movie and i kind of you know like you said it's like uh the hey kids were let's put on a show type thing right so like yes he he got it together he got the gumption and this is what they were able to make and uh it turned out pretty good it definitely does feel like a series of sketches to me a lot of it felt very disjointed and episodic and that was a common criticism, although it seems like mostly critics were were cool with that. So I mean, you know, we know critics like movies about making movies, right? They and do. Especially like and you're like when you're like, how how did this beat Reservoir Dogs? 1992 Sundance breaking out black and white movie with a classic and an upcoming independent actor, a movie about making movies like, yeah, I get it. I guess it just seems so much less bold to me than oh, our dogs i agree i'm not saying it should have won i'm just saying like i could see how the sundance audience was like or the jury was like hey this is a movie for us you know right thing. right and people who are in the independent world um seeing something of themselves in this film right someone gets us yeah exactly so finally marjorie baumgarten in the austin chronicle had a lot of similar kinds of things to say she said shot in stunning black and white the compositions almost behave like characters themselves providing playful dollops of humor and visual treats as well as ironic commentaries. In the Soup's charm is based in its humor, in its odd bits of business that happen in the margins. It makes for a high level of unpredictability in what would otherwise be a highly predictable scenario, that of a young filmmaker striving to make his first feature. Narratively, there's very little arc to hang on to. The movie boils down to a collection of moments. Some may find too many quirks and too little story for their personal tastes. Others may like this soup just fine. Mm, that's the thing about soup, Josh. It's all based on personal tastes. It's so mm. true. Much what, like independent film. What's your favorite soup? I don't really like soup, honestly. Oh, my God. What a sad. <laughs> you're like an old, decrepit man. You're going to learn to like soup. I, I guess I'm going to have to. Soon it'll be the only thing I can eat. <laughs> you own it. I mean, you know, not even a grilled cheese and a tomato soup combo. That sounds like a good one for you. I like grilled cheese, but no, I would not eat tomato soup at all. I mean, if I ate soup, I might have like chicken noodle soup or something mm. really. That was going to be that. my next guess for you, chicken yeah. noodle. But Dave, yeah. got a favorite soup yeah, out there? It's boring, but I'm going chicken noodle. I mean, it's it's classic. You know? I'm it sure Jason's classic. eating some super fancy gourmet soups. I have, but I mean, you know, like off the top of my head, I'm going to go right to Tom Ka, the Thai soup. And uh, that's that's quite delicious. Uh, but, yeah, I've had uh, I've had all, all types of soups, Josh. You know, if this was awesome soup year, we'd be going for it right now. But I don't think anyone wants to hear awesome. soup. But I'm excited. The weather's starting to get cold around here and <laughs> it's about to be soup season. Everyone, maybe not awesome soup year, but soup season, the podcast, people would listen to that. I have yeah. no doubt. So. The same number of people who will listen to Feel the Burns will be listening to soup season. <laughs> ooh, ooh, soup season and Feel the Burns, a crossover episode where we review an Ed Burns movies and perhaps eat soup with Ed Burns. I could go for oh, that. It just gets worse. And what worse. about a soup that hasn't gotten a chance to cool down a little bit? And so, ooh. you know, because it yeah, burns you. Yeah. Also, it Ed burns. burns is Irish, so maybe it could be like a Guinness stew, you know, Ooh. something like that. Uh, that's good. Hey, Josh, back to this podcast that we're doing. Yeah, uh, let's do that. The Baumgarten is wrong about one thing. It was not okay. shot on black and white. It was shot in color. Oh. And the idea was he wanted like this kind of pristine black and white look, and it was uh, a technique that he used for a color transfer. And uh, I think everyone was was pretty pleased with that. It does look cool. 
It does look cool. I, I was surprised at how much critics focused on the way it looked because it's not a movie where, at least to me, you're looking at, at the you're looking at it and thinking, wow, these are stunning shot compositions. I mean, it's kind of ramshackle. And I mean, I think on purpose, it's an indie film. It's meant to sort of reflect the nature of Aldolfo Rolo's situation and the world that he's in. And it doesn't look bad, but to me, it didn't. It wasn't a movie that I thought about the visual style anywhere near the top of the list of its appeal. Well, I think that's part of the reason, Josh, because you know you had mentioned Jarmish and everything, and like he had that kind of like permanent vacation, Stranger Than Paradise, that like real gritty black and white until right. maybe like Down by Law. So like the idea of like, hey we're shooting the same type of things, apartments and like, just kind of like that, like uh blank generation stuff. And then it, it looks like a little more, um, you know, kind of elegant. I think that's one of the reasons that people were drawn to it. I guess. I don't know if elegant is the way I would describe the way this looks. I mean, I, I, I think I would compare it more to those Jarmish movies, but um, yeah, it, that's, that's nitpicking. It does look nice. It does look nice. So, Jason, as a as a connoisseur of 90s indie film, had you seen this one before? I had seen this one before, and it was, uh, I think you and I were having conversations about, like, these weird Sundance winners at one point in time. And, you know, I had read I had read the premise. It's about Steve Buscemi getting involved with, like, kind of some sideways characters as he's trying to make a movie. And it's in Sundance and it's black and white and it's the 90s. And I'm like, wow, this sounds like a perfect movie for me to watch. And I liked it the same amount both times. I think Dave likes it more than me. Uh, and that's cool, Dave. This was your first time seeing it. Yeah, I hadn't even heard of this one, but uh, I, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. And Josh? I remember hearing about it, certainly, you know, alongside the other big 90s breakouts like Tarantino and Rodriguez and Kevin Smith. And as we'll probably talk about, Alexander Rockwell was one of the four directors alongside Tarantino and Rodriguez and Allison Anders, who worked on Four Rooms, which I remember seeing when it came out. Yeah. But for whatever reason, it didn't inspire me to want to see this movie at that time. So I was vaguely aware of it, but had never seen it. And it had been in my queue on, uh, you know, streaming along with hundreds of other movies to watch someday. And so I had not seen it until. Uh, you know, until watching it for this podcast. And spoiler, I did not like this movie at all. I think we could probably tell. Uh, mm -hmm. Allison Anders was at uh, Sundance 92 with Gas Food Lodging. So um, I haven't seen that, have you? No, I have not seen that. Um, and uh, Allison Anders is another one who, she's kind of in the mid-range. She didn't really uh, fall immediately back into obscurity like Alexander Rockwell did, but obviously she didn't have the huge breakout of Tarantino and Rodriguez. And uh, I do, I mean, as far as Alison Anders goes, I remember seeing her film Grace of My Heart, which was probably her biggest mainstream movie, the one with Ileana Douglas based on loosely on the life of Carol King. And I loved that movie. It was a very long time ago that I saw it, but I remember thinking it was mm, fantastic. That sounds good. I, I, you know, Four Rooms is not easily findable uh, as far as streaming goes. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. So, but I would like to revisit that because I saw it in the theater and was way disappointed in it. And I wonder, looking back now, knowing more about all these filmmakers, how I'd feel about it. Yeah, I think the general consensus on it at the time was that it was disappointing, that it was sort of not not uh, showcasing the strengths of any of the filmmakers. But I think I liked it at the time I saw it. I remember I saw it on video, not in the theater, but certainly it was something that I was eager to see 
at the time, and I have not revisited it since then. And it's sort of surprising that it's not accessible given how obsessive people are, especially over Tarantino and wanting to see every single thing that he's ever been involved with. Yeah, like we did when we watched my best friend's birthday. Right, exactly. You can watch that weird thing on YouTube, but uh, Four Rooms, I guess you can't watch. So not sure why that is. Josh. Yes. I, uh, as you know, I uh, have recently read Spike, Mike Slackers and Dykes, a guided tour across a decade of American independent cinema by John Pearson, who is one of the all-time great sales agents or representatives of independent films. He was with, obviously, Spike Lee and Kevin Smith, and uh, we've talked about that kind of uh, queer film movement of the 80s, and, you know, he was there for all of it and everything, so... And, uh, you know, Slacker, of course, is our our friend Richard Linkletter. But um, in the book, I wanted to kind of when he was doing Roger and Me, which we've also talked about here on this podcast um, and sold for a huge amount of money. Right. He was talking about this. He said, uh, I needed to be confident that Roger and Me hadn't yet passed its perfect moment. The notorious example of opportunity lost forever occurred in 1992 at Sundance when In the Soup won the grand jury prize. The excitement was palpable and the heat scorching. Unfortunately, the producers put the independent offers on hold and began the protracted process of going to Los Angeles after the festival and scheduling studio-by-studio screenings. In retrospect, this seems like a bit of a pig-headed overreaching since studios are not known for acquiring black-and-white features in which Steve Buscemi plays a filmmaker trying to make a film. As time passed, the indie distributors got back home and had a long hiatus to reconsider their degree of interest. In a very sad turn of events, In the Soup was eventually sold, in parentheses, to Triton Pictures uh, for no advance with the producers providing the P&A money, a service deal. Although I didn't yet know it at the time of Roger and Me, the sales fraternity now has a shorthand expression for producers who get carried away and miss their moment. Don't soup it up. <laughs> yeah, wow. that definitely does seem like a misguided approach that uh, no matter how much momentum you have coming out of Sundance, this isn't a movie that like Warner Brothers is going to decide to put the yeah, full maybe. weight of a theatrical release behind. And I think maybe that led to some of these like, you know, immediate changes in philosophy, like he's like Pearson was saying, like, hey, if you got juiced at Sundance, make the deal at Sundance. Right, right, right. And of course, this was an era when the the sort of indie, quote, divisions of studios didn't really exist. And so it was either major, major studio or small independent distributor. But of course, Tarantino, Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, Richard Linklater, they all managed to find that that middle ground that this movie just never found apparently well right they had a better sales uh strategy and you know uh a lot of that was pearson and a few not tarantino but Linkletter and kevin smith like we said and you know you go where uh where the money is baby that's what i always say and i'm broke yeah all right <laughs> So uh, anything else on the background of this film that you want to talk about, Jason? I thought this was interesting. Jennifer Beals, uh, there's this scene in the rooftop with the snow, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, they actually did that before the making of the movie. And that's a memorable scene. It says, Alex grabbed the camera and we ran to the roof to shoot. I didn't have anything ready. It was just like, let's go. It's beautiful. It's the feeling of the film. We were just creating this moment. That's what the whole film felt like. 
Yeah, it, it definitely does feel like that. I don't know how much like improvisation is in this film, but it really does have that let's put on a show kind of feel like you were saying, Jason. So it doesn't surprise me that there were a lot of spontaneous moments like that that ended up in this film. Yeah. We'll come back in a moment then and talk about our general thoughts on In the Soup. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about the Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner, Alexander Rockwell's In the Soup. And uh, Jason, it seems like you you like this one pretty well. You've seen it twice now. Did you appreciate it more the second time or you said about the same? Literally right there down the same. You know, right. It's fine. It's easy to watch 90 minutes or thereabouts. Uh, I think some of the humor really works with Buscemi like getting it over his head with the Cassell character and Cassell's, uh, you know, Joe's brother in there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good glance into that New York independent arts lifestyle of, uh, the early nineties. So that's kind of what I liked about it. And obviously, as you read during the reviews, Seymour Cassell is very charismatic in this thing. He is, although I felt like he was almost too overpowering at times. Not that he gives a bad performance or anything, but the character is so, I mean, the character is meant to be kind of overpowering, right? He he fills the room no matter what, wherever he is, even if you're annoyed with him or trying to get rid of him, you can't. And eventually he wins people over no matter what. Um, but to me, I was I found him a little grating uh, as a person. And I don't think I was as charmed by him, by Joe, the character, as I was meant to be. I mean, uh, Steve Buscemi, Aldolfo Rolo says in voiceover at one point, something like, you know, Joe had this ability to draw you in, even if you knew that he was taking advantage of you or whatever. And I didn't necessarily feel that way. I felt the whole time during this movie, like, get away from this dude, Aldolfo. <laughs> He's not helpful. He's not good for you. Nah, I mean, you know, I definitely bought into the idea of like, hey, this guy, one, couldn't even pay his rent, let alone get his movie financed. And while Joe was like kind of a sinkhole of stuff, he was producing results. He got his rent taken care of for months. You know, they were getting to the point of pre-production, it felt like. So uh, I, I'm not against uh, that kind of character. But and I think there was some fun stuff that he did, like steal uh, the cop's car just for no reason. You know, that that's fun. And the night where they went out dancing and Jennifer Beale's character got sick. So they were dancing in like a, a parking lot that, you know, that was that was fun, Josh. There's some fun. That's that was fun. a nice. Yeah, yeah, that was a nice little scene with the dancing and Seymour Cassell gets to show off his uh, his dancing skills there. And that was kind of kind of nice. But I disagree with you that they were getting close to pre-production. I thought the whole point was that Joe was just stringing Aldolfo along, that he keeps saying, oh, we're almost there. We just got to do this one more thing. We just got to do this one more thing and then we'll get the money. And it's just a way to get Aldolfo to help him commit more crimes. I never believed that they were ever going to make this movie. You know, and I do think this is one of the, the failures of the movie because like, I love the concept of like, gangster convinces obsessive filmmaker he's going to finance his movie he just needs obsessive filmmaker to, you know, help him pull off these crimes to get the funding. And like, you know, that can escalate it from something very basic and small to like these huge heists. And I think it was one unclear, uh, you know, what was going on and two, like it didn't um, escalate the way it could have. 
Yeah, and and one weird thing to me, like coming into this, I knew maybe Jason from what you had said or just from having re read about it that this is a movie supposedly about making an independent film and it's not. Like I wouldn't even put this movie on a list of like movies about movie making. Making the movie seems so secondary to what this movie is even about that it sort of surprises me that people are like, oh yeah, this is a movie that, that's really about independent filmmaking. This is a movie about a loser who gets caught up with a gangster and does crimes and, you know, kind of talks about making a movie every now and then. Hey, everyone's a loser until they win Sundance, Josh. You know, you don't know what's going to become of Adolfo Rolo. I would doubt that Adolfo Rolo is going to achieve any artistic or commercial success as he dreams of at the beginning of this film, saying that his crappy apartment building will someday be a, a stop for tourists and have a plaque on the side of it or anything like that. I, I don't. I think this goes back to something we were talking about in The Player, which is that in almost every movie about making movies, the movie that the characters are making seems like it's horrible. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. and Aldolfo <laughs> is, like I said, Aldolfo is not talented. Aldolfo has written a script that would make for a terrible movie. And the movie he did make, his little short film that he shows Joe at one point, he has to sit there and explain it as it's going on just to for anyone to have basic understanding of it. Well, Josh, as you know, Warner Brothers bought Ultimate Surrender from Adolfo <laughs> Rolo and they had unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. And Jennifer Beals is a Latina actress, so they canceled the movie after they had already funded uh, it. So topical. Yes. Yeah, no, they're gonna make they're gonna make unconditional <laughs> surrender right alongside habeas corpus, I think. <laughs> That's right. So um Look, that, that scene on the roof uh, where he's filming, that's that's a nice scene. I like, you know, one scene I really liked was where they go in to break into the house and then the old man who's kind of already kind of suffering from, you know, dementia or whatever, memory loss, just kind of has this moment where he's telling Adolfo, like, the things that he would want to do if he had one more chance to do something in life. And I like that scene a lot. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's fine. I understand what you're saying. The things that don't work, don't work. Yeah, and I felt like the things that do work or the things that, that people seem to think work or that appeal to people who like this movie, I just didn't really care for very much. Like I said, like Seymour Cassell's whole character, the idea of this being, I don't know, insightful about indie filmmakers or anything like that. I just found all of these people annoying. I wasn't rooting for Adolfo. I wasn't rooting for Joe. I, I have a question. Dave, you liked it so much. What did you like about it that we missed? Well, I wouldn't say specifically that you missed, but um, to go back to what Josh was saying earlier about how he felt like he was just being strung along by Seymour Cassell's character, um, I, I would agree with that 100%. Um, but that's part of the game when you're, you know, trying to work your way into a creative field. I feel like that's what I loved about the movie so much. Are these kind of endless uh, attempts to try to make something and all the people you meet along the way who promise that they're going to help out and that, that you're going to collaborate and things are going to work out. And they they never do. Like, they yeah. pretty much never do. And this this is a big kind of realistic version of a wild goose chase. And even though all the characters are so cartoonish, they are in real life too. Um, just as a, you know, a quick aside, like just a couple of weeks ago, some guy wanted to talk to me about podcasting and about like how we could collaborate and, and uh, turn it into this whole thing. And I'm like, okay, sure. I'll, you know, I'll do a phone call. 
15 minutes in, he's talking to me about ripping off Pink Floyd songs and just changing little bits and pieces. And I'll make millions of dollars if I do this. I mean, these are the kind of weirdos you meet when you're trying to do things, you know, whether it be in filmmaking or music making or, you know, whatever, just any kind of creative endeavor. You meet so many weirdos. And I felt like this movie really captured that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Dave, that you do meet a lot of weirdos in these fields. And Jason, I'm sure you have stories about people that you've met in your efforts to get films made. And and even just as like a journalist and a critic, I've certainly uh, connected with people who say like, oh, I have this website I'm starting or I have this magazine that mm -hmm. I'm starting and they turn out to be complete uh, frauds or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm not saying that that's unrealistic, but I just just as a character, I found Joe grading. And and another thing that I, I hadn't even really thought of, but you know, when you're talking, Dave, you were mentioning about like collaborators, like why does Aldolfo Rolo not know literally a single other person in the world of filmmaking? Like the only people involved in his film are Joe, the gangster who may finance and produce it and his neighbor who he wants to star in it. And who clearly is not an actress nor has ever had any interest in being an actress. And yeah. like, did Aldolfo go to film school? Like, did he ever meet literally one other person who is like a cinematographer or right. an actor or a writer <laughs> yeah. or anything like that? It seemed very, I mean, and maybe it's limited because this film itself is limited and they don't have a lot of resources to put in a lot of their characters or whatever. But it seemed mm -hmm. like Aldolfo was not part of like an indie art scene or anything like that, that sure. he was just on his own. I, I I don't know. I didn't, it's like, I didn't believe him as like the kind of person who is a filmmaker or even just an aspiring filmmaker. Well, I think you mentioned earlier something about like the networking aspect of it and like, yeah, I mean, he's not a good filmmaker. You're right. Like you, you mentioned multiple times that a lot of times these movies about filmmakers, they're making bad movies. He probably is a really bad filmmaker and he probably the business end of filmmaking isn't that good at either and does not have a network of people that he's amassed over the years. And you're, you're right. Doesn't know cinematographers, doesn't know other filmmakers. And it all kind of leads to that almost dead end nature of what a lot of these people kind of work their way through. I mean, and there are people who are good at one and not the other. Right. So, sure. you know, and this was like the 90s. So maybe it, it was just like he had his own camera and that's what he was doing because that's what we saw him do. You know, so I don't know, man. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, give Adolfo the uh, the benefit of the doubt here, Josh, because I because I, I want to see the film made. Yeah, you want you want to see unconditional surrender on a double bill with habeas corpus. Can, can I just say, like, you know, like his partner here is a gangster, like you know, a, a cr criminal, and he has a much better situation than some. Of, like Dave, you're talking about the characters you've dealt with. We've mm -hmm. dealt with far worse people than Joe the criminal. You know, so. <laughs> like far worse as so. in like dangerous. I mean, uh, far worse as in human beings, you know, like, you yeah, know, that too, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Joe does try to be a nice guy, although Joe is one of those guys that he's like super nice until all of a sudden he's really scary. And mm -hmm. in a way, that's almost scarier than someone who's just always scary because it's unpredictable. You never know when he's going to suddenly turn on you and pull a gun and you're like, what did I even do for this to happen? Um, so I, I think that's part of what Seymour Cassell does well in this film is that he gives you the sense that Joe is like 
friendly and gregarious and very demonstrative. You know, he's always hugging and mm-hmm. nibbling on the ears of uh, of Aldolfo and, and all this stuff. But on the other hand, there's always right below the surface the chance that he might just murder you. Yeah. yeah, but he doesn't. He never does. So, you know, he never but, murders Aldolfo. But you can't tell me that he didn't murder somebody at some point. Hey, Josh, here's a question for you. And I think this is becoming a theme of 1992 Christmas movie. <laughs> there is some Christmas <laughs> stuff in here, as well as New Year's. I feel like they spend more time on New Year's because that's that's the night where you're talking about where they try to go out dancing and then they end up dancing in the parking lot. And they go back to Joe's house or apartment or whatever, and they're all having a good time until Joe makes a pass at uh, Angelica, Jennifer Beale's character, in a really very inappropriate way. Yeah. And then mm. and then she justifiably gets the hell out of there. So, yeah, it seems like this would be more of a New Year's movie, I guess, than a Christmas movie. Josh, you know, uh, we know that Joe wants to be involved in the movies, but we didn't know he wanted to be the next Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, it seems like he does. He's got, you know, the star and he's putting the moves on her right with his own girlfriend. Uh, Dang, played by Pat Moya, is just like literally like two feet away. And so yeah. I don't know. She's she seems like a very go with the flow kind of person. And then, and then she cool just and then she just then to make it up to him, he just bought horse for him and Adolfo. Right, right. We get uh, Debbie Mazar as one of those uh, yeah. prostitutes who show up later at uh, yeah. Aldolfo's house. And Elizabeth Bracco, Lorraine Bracco's sister. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't recognize hmm. her. Yeah. Hey, but... Josh, uh, you know, and then, you know, while uh, Elizabeth Bracco and Steve Buscemi are just chatting, the TV show The Naked Truth comes on, which feels like a very public access TV show of the 90s where, like, you sit on a a stool and talk about you know your life while you're naked that felt like it could have been uh, on a wayne's world uh station back then right so, yeah that's sure. true it could be on right after wayne's world and that's this this weird show that the producers played by jim jarmish and carol kane who's always a welcome uh appearance in in random weird roles they offer him a hundred dollars to appear on this thing and he sits naked and talks about his life and and only gets paid forty dollars apparently according to his voiceover yeah, really three other, you know, kind of um standouts from that se- from the 90s New York art scene. Uh we have Rockets Red Glare who is an actor and a performer and a stand-up comedian and is kind of like, you know, I don't think anyone really knows who he is outside of the world of comedy or Jim Jarmusch, but you know, his name comes up a lot. Uh Sam Rockwell who plays um mentally disabled uh, younger brother of Angelica, and he does it with a lot less um, overtness and is in a far less offensive way than uh, Geely than when we saw in Geely. Should we say? Okay, if your sta- if your standard is Geely, then yeah, it was less offensive than Geely. Yeah. Also, again, ninety two, like you know, people were doing things like this, so, and yeah, of course. Stanley Tucci's in there, and uh, we love Stanley Tucci. I do love Stanley Tucci, although, again, I don't know if this is Stanley Tucci's best moment. He's another one that I think, you know, he was friends with Rockwell. They worked together with Alexander Rockwell. Uh, They worked together a bunch of times, and his character is supposed to be French, although I felt like his accent was kind of uh, variable. Yeah, it was. It was a little more. Yeah, it was it Eastern European. I don't know what it was. Right, right. But he shows up basically in like two scenes and just kind of hams it up as the uh, green card husband, I guess, of Angelica, of Jennifer Beals' character. But one thing I wanted to get back to, I was trying to start to say earlier, is that 
the sort of love story, the connection between Angelica and Aldolfo, and he's basically just really creepily obsessed with her for a while, and then they they sort of get together. I never really bought into that at all. I didn't really want them to get together. I think that's the weakest part of the movie. Yeah. Um, well, what about, how about the fact that she's just the neighbor and a waitress and he's like, I'll make you the star of my movie. You know, like <laughs> we don't even know if she's ever had any acting. Like, uh, it's very Sean Baker of him, you know? Yeah. Well, that was like what I was saying before. Like, does this guy literally not know another actor? And even yeah. if he's going to have Angelica as his discovery and she's going to be the star, like there are other characters in this movie who will play those characters. Like it doesn't seem like at any point that Aldolfo is making any sort of reasonable plans to actually make this movie. Not It's not just Joe stringing him along. Like, he's stringing Joe along in a way because he clearly doesn't know the very basic elements of making a movie. I mean, Josh, you're saying this like it's not accurate in the representation of making a movie, but how many filmmakers, quote unquote, have we come across over the years who know nothing about actually making a movie who said that they're going to make a movie and then of course, none of it ever happens. Right. I guess so. And I guess if I felt like that was meant to be the point, I would be more forgiving of it. But I I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, because you see a lot like Alexander Rockwell says this, this was inspired by his own experiences. And obviously he's a real filmmaker. He knows what he's doing. And yet this doesn't feel reflective of that. So I don't know. I just I feel like kind of early on in this movie, I didn't buy into it and I never was able to buy into it as it went along. Well, that's fair. Should we rate this thing, Josh? Yeah, why not? Rate it out of... Uh, Five nude TV appearances. <laughs> why not? Sure. Yeah, that's all that Aldolfo has going for him, so he'll probably make some more appearances. <laughs> uh, it gets uh, three nude TV appearances for me. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. It's fine. It's okay. Yeah, I wanted to be with you on that. At first, I was kind of thinking that, but as it went along, I just got more and more annoyed with it, so I'm, I'm going to give it two naked TV, pier- Whoa, TV appearances. just two, not two and a half. I really, huh? No, I really didn't like it. Like I, yeah. and again, the more, it was one of those things where at first I was like, eh, all right, whatever. And the more it went on, the more I was just like, when is this going to be over? This movie is annoying me. Uh, mm. So yeah, mm. not for me. Dave? Uh, I'll raise the average up and go four. Um, oh. I, I, had a, I had a really good time with it. And uh, I, I agree with a lot of the criticisms that have been brought up here, but at the same time, it was just a, a fun movie for me. Are you going to write the score for an unfilmed Adolfo Rolo? I probably already have. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> All right, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of In the Soup. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we have been talking about Alexander Rockwell's In the Soup, which won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 1992. And as we said, as Jason pointed out via that excerpt from Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, this movie did not capitalize on its Sundance success. And so its legacy could maybe or should have been Alexander Rockwell joining people like Quentin Tarantino Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, Richard Linklater, et cetera, as one of these big indie auteurs to get to the next level. And that really didn't happen. He did get the chance to direct a segment of Four Rooms, which was a big deal. I think this is the thing is that Four Rooms, because of Tarantino and Rodriguez's success, I think that was like a heavily anticipated mainstream release. And he was a big part of it. And so he couldn't capitalize on that really either. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
the thing is now he runs like the director's program at NYU, right? So he's landed on his feet. He gets to live in New York. He gets to train generations of filmmakers, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I think he's doing fine. He never hit that level of success that those other guys did. But recently, like Josh, you were telling us, he's kind of had a, a few more critical, uh, you know, uh, endeavors as a, as a filmmaker that have done well for himself. I mean, he continues to make films on a very small scale. And I do think, yeah, his most recent film uh, that just uh, came out in 2020, which is called Sweet Thing, that actually stars his two kids. Um, he not not with Jennifer Beals. He and Jennifer Beals divorced in 1996, although they obviously had a good relationship because they continued to work together. She's continued to appear in some of his films. But he is now married to another actress, to Karen Parsons, who people probably know best mm. still from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And so their two kids are the stars, I guess, of that film, Sweet Thing, that did get some, some positive reviews. And he's made other very small-scale films in the time in between In the Soup and now. So he does manage to work, um, you know, certainly not anywhere near on the level of those other indie filmmakers. But he's obviously someone that people enjoy working with. You know, Steve Buscemi is in tons of these tiny little films of his. Like I said, Jennifer Beals, they got divorced and she still appears in his films. Um, even Seymour Cassell worked with him again. And uh, people like Peter Dinklage and Stanley Tucci, who right. he met early on in that New York art scene, they continue to appear in his movies, even though they're way more famous than him. And clearly these are things that they're just doing because they enjoy it. And so that's that's a, a mark in his favor. But also, maybe this is the way he enjoys it. He's had that chance to do four rooms, and maybe that big Hollywood-style production isn't for him. Maybe he likes the intimacy, and, you know, he's teaching at NYU, which would be more of the independent film school than, like, one of the big UCLA or USC's, right? So maybe this is the way that he set out for himself to do this stuff. Yeah, that could be. I, I really don't know uh, what he would have uh, preferred to have, but he's definitely carved out a career for himself. And have you seen any of his other films, Jason? No, I was trying to watch Sweet Thing last night, but my uh, hoopla is still messed up. So I don't know what I, I don't understand. I, I Can someone fix my hoopla? It's a lot. This is the problem with the libraries, right? They give you <laughs> stuff and it's not even. No, Josh, the answer is no. Yeah, I uh, I was uh, hoping to watch Sweet Thing and I didn't have time, but I had like a number of years ago randomly watched uh, one of his films called 13 Moons that uh, I wrote about on my blog and I really, really hate it. Apparently, I don't remember a lot about it, but I have it rated as uh, one star on uh, on Letterboxd. And in my little blog post, I said, whatever he had in the 90s, he'd clearly lost it by 2002, which is the year that that mm. movie came out. So I did not care for it. But it features Steve Buscemi and Jennifer Beals and Peter Dinklage and a lot of these collaborators that he worked with. So I can't yeah. recommend 13 Moons. And neither of us can recommend Henry Edwards' 1936 farce in the soup about a wealthy couple impersonating their servants to mislead a visitor because we've never seen it. No, you didn't watch the unrelated 1936 movie called British, In the Soup? British farce? No, I didn't. Come on, Jason. How could you not have done that? Jennifer Beals, Josh, as we said, you know, Flashdance was the height of her fame, but she's done a really good job as a character actress. Uh, you know, she's on that Law, Law and Order Organized Crime. She's done The L Word. She's in Book of Boba Fett. She's really, uh, you know, a go-to character actor, I'd say. Yeah, and she definitely has a big following from The L Word, which is a show that has, you know, a large 
fan base and the new version of it, the new generation or something like that that's on now. She's also a regular on that one. And I feel like she got a lot of attention for being on the book of Boba Fett. I mean, which is, I suppose, not surprising given Star Wars fandom, but it seemed like she came out of nowhere and was a big part of that. Although I I didn't watch it. Did you watch uh, the book of Boba Fett? No, but I'll tell you what I did watch that I really loved this year was Outer Range, the kind of sci-fi, uh, fantastical Western uh, that Josh Brolin stars in. But um, really, the Will Patton a- as Wayne is uh, who played Skippy in this movie is quite a character in this thing. Yeah, Will Patton is another great, very prolific character actor, and he has that kind of distinctive voice that when he shows up, you you know, oh yeah, that that's that guy, and is he's good at playing these menacing characters. Here he's Skippy is Joe's brother, who is he's not a cuddly, friendly gangster. He's a very threatening, violent gangster, mm-hmm. and meets a violent end here in this film. But uh, yeah, Will Patton always a welcome presence to see in a film. I think. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing, you know. Is is full of these character actors, you know. Uh, Carol Kane uh, won two Emmys for Taxi and uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Annie Hall, Oscar nod for Hester Street. Stanley Tucci's killing it as an actor and as a TV show host with that Search for Italy that he's doing and everything. He won an, uh, he's got four Emmys and a Golden Globe. So, you know, all these guys uh, just making moves, Josh. Yeah, and of course Seymour Cassell was and continued to be this incredibly prolific character actor. He did a lot of kind of straight to video B movies and stuff, but he was working constantly right up until his death in 2019. Uh, He did work with Alexander Rockwell again on a film called Pete Smalls is Dead in 2010. He was known for his appearances in multiple Wes Anderson movies. And uh, although he did pass away in 2019, at least according to Wikipedia, he has like two or three more projects you know, posthumous releases that he was great. working so steadily that are still set to come out. So yeah, I, another person, it was always a pleasure to see him when he would pop up in something, even if the movie itself wasn't good. I agree, Josh. Uh, we've talked about Steve Buscemi a number of times. So let me ask you a question that we haven't addressed with him. What is your favorite Steve Buscemi appearance in an Adam Sandler film? <laughs> <laughs> that that would be uh, not. I don't know. Doesn't he do a voice in the Hotel Transylvania movies? Those are those are sort of tolerable. So I like him that. as uh, as as uh, man with a kill list, Danny McGrath in uh, in Billy Madison, where right. you know he shoots up his opponent in the uh, academic decathlon, and then Billy Madison says, "Boy, am I glad I called that guy." <laughs> I, I have not seen Billy Madison, so <laughs> all of that is lost. 1995, Dave. We're going to make him watch oh, it when we cover God. it. So, oh, I can't wait. wait. Yeah. So, hey, uh, Stanley Tucci is also going to be in I Want to Dance with Somebody, the Whitney Houston-based movie coming up. And I want to recommend, you know, his performance in The Devil Wears Prada is quite good. But uh, as we've talked about on this podcast before, I'm a big fan of Greg Matola's The Day Trippers, and he's a major part in that. Yeah, I, I, we have talked about that a bunch of times, and that's another 90s indie film that has uh, had a long life, I guess, as being uh, influential and being a cult favorite. And I do want to say, you know, we've talked a lot about how this movie failed to capitalize on its success from Sundance, didn't become a big deal, but it certainly has built a cult following over the years. And in 2019, or in 2018, rather, there was a restoration of this film that was funded on Kickstarter that was released. And I, I believe we probably all watched that version of it that's currently streaming. So, I mean, 
enough of a following for this film that Factory 25, which is kind of a small hipster indie film distribution company, wanted to get it restored and wanted to re-release it. And people were interested in participating. I think if you look in the credits of this restoration version, Quentin Tarantino is thanked. I'm sure he put up some money for this as well. So it's a movie that continues to generate interest from people, even if it didn't become a big deal at the time it was first released. That's cool, man. I like that these like hidden, you don't think it's a gem, but these films that might've been lost to time still have a, have a place. Yeah. And I might not have liked it, but I certainly appreciate that it's, it's continues to be beloved and it is a, an important film in in the whole 90s independent cinema movement so i'm glad that it hasn't been completely lost because that could have happened it could be something where right. it was it was impossible for us to track down to watch and then that's not the case it's very easy to see if you want to check it out yeah i got two more things i mentioned that old man he's uh, played by sully boyar who's uh, another one of those character new york theater actors just wanted to shout out him but josh to me perhaps the lasting legacy of in the soup is this fact Numerous actors from this film also appeared in the movie Trees Lounge from 1996. <laughs> Steve yes. Buscemi, Seymour Castell, Steve Randazzo, Elizabeth Bracco, Debbie Mazar, Richard Bose, Carol Kane, and Rockets Red Blair. Wow. Yeah. Someday we're going to have to talk about Trees Lounge because Jason I love has that movie. brought it up so much and loves it so much. So we'll get to that. And that's, you know, again, they're all part of this same kind of scene. Steve Buscemi and Alexander Rockwell, obviously, uh, you know, very close. And so it's not surprising that he would have gotten a lot of the same people to be in his directorial debut, which we'll watch someday. I'll so, probably watch it on my own before. Yeah. Watch well, I mean, we'll talk about it. I've seen it as well, although not. In I'm looking time. forward to it. Yeah. Can I, you know, like um, Las Vegas, where we live, Josh, as you know, we, we there's a lot of towns. I do know that we live here. Yes. <laughs> Josh, as you might be aware, we live in a city called Las Vegas. But, um, you know, I, I think one of my favorite things that I've gotten to do lately is I've kind of like called together this little troupe of theater actors and we read like screenplays and we're trying to make stuff. And like, I think that kind of spirit that you see in these 90s movies, like, hey, let's just use what we got and and go do something like I love that stuff. And I, I am happy that I, there is so much talent out here to work with like that back in the 90s in New York. Yeah. And that's the spirit of the film. Although, again, like I said, something that Aldolfo Rolo himself clearly doesn't have. But Rockwell did. <laughs> Alexander Rockwell did put it forward in this film. And that is and I hope you get to make a similar film with all of your collaborators there. That gets really, you know, screwed over by sales <laughs> agents and philosophies. And, and becomes a cult classic that is someday restored with the help of Quentin Tarantino. And my ex-wife, Jennifer Beals. <laughs> so that's In the Soup. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Get In the Soup with us on social media. In the Soup. In the soup, we're on social media. In the soup, I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. My website, go for Jason, is uh, ground up in a soup somewhere. Who knows? But I do have a new website coming called Eat This Comedy, where you'll find out about my new company that involves two of my loves, which is uh, dining and, and stand up comedy. We're going to do a lot of shows in collaboration with restaurants. So that's a good thing. I'm happy about that. Josh. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. 
My website, joshbellhateseverything.com, uh, probably could have uh, used some Aldolfo Rolo energy there. <laughs> needs, a, yeah. needs a restoration. Yeah, exactly. Kickstarted restoration. restoration. Some financing from a gangster, something like that. But you can find me on social media, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, too. Check me out there with some thoughts on films. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. But before you do, don't forget, I'm at Gopher Jason on Letterboxd. Now, Dave, we could talk about your podcast, which I'm on once a month, Piecing It Together, the trailers episode. Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> yeah, uh, Piecing It Together. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where there's a whole lot of filmmakers that are probably in similar situations to our buddy, Adolfo Rolo. <laughs> So, Jason, what is in our next episode? Well, Josh, it's one of the most acclaimed of all Oscar winners. I'm excited to rewatch it. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, that's that's a good film. <laughs> it's Clint Eastwood's <laughs> Unforgiven. Tune in next time for Unforgiven. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.